Hey everybody, Bees with Ben here. Super, super cool episode today. When I say cool, super cool because I'm talking to an awesome beekeeper over in Canada. Ian Stepler from Stepler Farms. We're going to hear all what it's about to keeping bees, what it's like to keep bees over in Canada. And I've got him on Skype and uh, got a little bit of a delay between talking because imagine Melbourne, Australia to Canada is a long, long way away. So uh, so thank you so much, uh, Ian. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I'm happy to be here. When we first contacted uh, each other, I didn't realize you're in Australia, so <laughs> it's kind of you're the first to uh, online. Oh, that's awesome! Fan- fantastic. So, so let's um, uh, once again, really appreciate your time. So let's talk about so so bees. Now, I understand. Obviously, you've got a really cool website, um, steplerfarms.com, and you. Obviously, you breed uh, be, uh, cows, you've uh, sh- uh, uh, beef, beef cattle, I should say, uh, Cherelay cattle. You've got grains that your crops that you do, as well as um, beekeeping. So, so tell us all about your farm and how it works, and and um, obviously, when we're, and your journey in the start of bees. Our farm, uh, we have about twenty five hundred acres. Um, we've been around here for a little while now with the uh, grandpa Stepler um, started farming back in 1922 as a grain farmer, cattle farmer. When my dad took over the farm, they uh, got into breeding Charlie cattle. So we're, we're pretty heavily involved with the cattle business. We breed Charlie bulls uh, for sale right across the country. And um, as a kid, I grew up in my brothers and uh, I started farming after, and then brothers come back to the farm after very little while away from it, and we all decided to carry on the farm from that point on. So right about now, we're uh, we farm 3,500 acres of land, and we got about we're just about to start calving out cattle. It'd be about 650 calves at the ground, and I brought beekeeping into the farm uh, about 20 years ago. So beekeeping is new to our family. It's kind of uh, something that you know a new thing, uh, and I. I look after 1,500 hives. So it's kind of like a family effort. We each have our own little bit of a division, I guess. I look after the, the honey farm. Uh, my one brother, Andre, looks after the cattle farm. Uh, my brother, Adam, looks after the grain farm. And I have a, another brother who flies for Air Canada. He's a captain, flies a 320. And, and when he's not flying, he's back helping, typically around the uh, grain farm or so. Um, I'm the president of the farm, so I look after all the financials and business and such. So we kind of, it's kind of a family effort, but all the work's kind of divided up, and we kind of divide or hired men up to achieve uh, all the work we're trying to get done also. So it's a lot of work. <laughs> wow, that's it certainly is, and that's 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 a big farm, you know, 3,500 acres, and obviously all the with the um, the cattle and the and the cropping, and obviously the bees. So, so I'm guessing now we sort of spoke. I, I think it was smack bang in the middle of um, of harvesting. I think it was on the on the canola. Um, you're doing the harvesting, but um, so is now your sort of downtime. Obviously, we know that bee working bee work never never stops. But so, but now is your downtime over winter. Yeah, typically on the honey farm, once we get the bees put away, uh, I lay all my staff off and it's, we don't, uh, 
November is when we bring the bees inside for winter. And, you know, we'll bring them out end of March into April. So we don't have a lot to do with the bees within that period of time, except for all the prep work and maintenance. I do a little bit of, uh, I make my own patties. I'll be mixing and cutting patties here in the new year and just a little bit of box work and such. But generally, I don't the uh, winter period because I like to keep all this kind of busy work uh, for the summer summer when my employees, um, you know, on an idle day or something, it's a bit so I like to keep them busy. So I keep all this kind of maintenance work for the summer period and get my hired guys to do all Okay, that's um, that's interesting. Uh, I try to maintain the equipment in the shop. Okay, super, super interesting. And that's uh, just so everyone knows who's, yeah. who's listening to this podcast, we've just got a, like a five-second, six-second delay. So um, so just forgive us because, once again, you know, Melbourne, Australia to uh, to Canada is a long, long way away. Now, now obviously, we're talking about winter and um, uh, winter with your bees. So, so how do you manage that? Like, obviously, the other thing is, too, I should mention, you've got a really cool – uh, YouTube channel, which is amazing. You know, so many us Aussies follow you. Um, we love what you do. So that's um, a Canadian bee, a Canadian beekeeper's blog. Uh, that's on YouTube. Uh, Ian is always uh, putting really awesome content, um, and I really sort of encourage you know people will jump on there and subscribe to his channel and listen to that. Um, now I've seen some speaking about winter, Ian. Um, I've seen. The bee keeping bees in the snow. So, so how do you manage bees in these really cold temperatures, and what do those temperatures get to? Yeah, so uh, yeah, we're not only dealing with the delay, but we're dealing with poor internet service. So I might drop off every once in a while, but just cut in whenever I get lost. <laughs> but anyways, uh, the uh, I winter my hives indoors. Uh, um, basically, just I'm trying to manage my hives cold, harsh winters that we experience in the, on the prairies of Canada. Um, well, there's a lot of guys in winter that are hives out uh, and they do fairly well. It's, it, depending on the year, it can uh, can be very variable. So uh, we've, in Canada, we've adopted a method of bringing our hives in to shelter and promote conditions. And basically what it is, is we bring the hives into an insulated shed. Um, we close the door turn off all the lights and keep the hives in absolutely complete darkness until we bring them back out in spring when the weather warms up. What we have to do is we have to maintain a nice, cool temperature within the shed. So we like to target the four degrees temperature, which typically is that magic number of, you know, the most efficient uh, temperature to uh, winter hives on just because they're not really active. They don't consume a lot of uh, food and if and if it's any colder, we run into condensation issues with that. Wow, that's that. We like to keep the hives up, and the the uh, the thing we have to do is we have to maintain a continual exchange through the shed because I have fifteen hundred hives in my shed right now, and they give you know something like 20 or 25 watts of heat energy off. So that's like having a, a 30,000 watt heater going on within that shed at all times. And it's very important that we take that heat out of that shed. Otherwise, if the shed gets too warm, the bees start leaving the, the hive. 
you know, they start wanting to ex- exit the uh, So we have to keep the, the, the temperature of the room at four degrees nice and cool, put them in the boxes also. So we do that with air exchange coming into the shed. And one thing about the cold winter in, in uh, Manitoba here is we're bringing out of the cold winter inside to away from the cold, but we also, by coming inside, we use that cold to be able to cool down the shed throughout the winters. And it kind of sounds like a, a silly thing to say, but we had to shelter from the cold, but we use the cold to cool the shed to maintain that temperature. And it's very important that uh, we maintain that temperature, otherwise, you know, it causes a lot of havoc within the shed. So, so basically, just the wintering indoors. Wow, and, and and so just just go back a step there. So, what temperature does it go down to? What's sort of a, what's an average or what's an extreme sort of drop in temperature outside in your, your Canadian winter where, where you where in uh, Manitoba where you are? Yeah. So uh, typically we're looking at minus twenty degrees Celsius, minus twenty five. Uh, this year it's been a real mild winter so far. We it's about minus ten right now Celsius. It hasn't really got too cold. We had a few minus 20 nights. Uh, so it's been kind of a mild winter so far. It's a little bit harder to keep the temperature down in the shed. It's a little bit mild. Some days coming up here this week, it's going to be above freezing. I'm going to have trouble maintaining a, you know, a four degree temperature. What I do in those situations is I just pump more air through the shed. So my fans are on a thermostat and they'll ramp up. As the temperature in, within the shed increases, it'll start drawing more air from the outside just to pull that heat out and just to try to maintain a cool environment. But uh, a lot of winters, just like last year, uh, we're looking at minus 30, minus 35. That cursed wind will bring that wind chill at minus 40. So it's, it's cold and windy here. So that's what we're sheltering from. Wow. That's that's incredible. Up, you know, minus forty degrees. Wow, that's incredible. And what about your summertime temperatures there, Ian? What 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 are your averages there? Yeah, so we're in a switch of that. Like in Manitoba, in the prairies, it. But then also through the summer, we suck up that Gulf air. I'm from the southern states, and we get the hot, humid weather too. It just kind of comes up the Mississippi. You those. Uh, Stream, so we're looking at plus 30, plus 35 through most of the summer. Uh, but you know, you look at our temperature, our weather, um, there's four very distinct seasons. So, winter, you know, it's going to be minus 20, minus 30, then we'll transition into so we have that kind of in between miserable weather for a little while. So, it kicks the cold. Finally, we get into summer and it kind of moderates a bit, then oh, it gets really hot and really humid, some rain, then it gets really dry through the summer. Last half of summer, dry and hot, and then it switches into more of a moderate temperature into fall, and then we get into that crop weather as it transitions back into winter. So it is kind of like a fluctuation of cold, miserable weather in Canada. <laughs> it is. That's like really sort of big variances there. That's incredible. That's more than 60 degrees Celsius sort of variance so and um obviously during the the good times so you're absolutely flat out busy and once again um a canadian beekeepers blog on youtube encourage everyone to check that out um so your honey crops what 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 particular crops are you sort of targeting and what honey flows or nectar flows you you get coming through there in your in your region yeah so we we focus on honey 
our flows throughout the year. And uh, we come out of uh, winter into spring, and we'll have those come. We don't target those springtime flows for any type of crop. Those flows just to help uh, build our bee stock up. So we'll have to come out the poplars and such as well as lots of pollen coming out to help. Dandelions come out, lots of nectar, with all the fruiting trees in the bush and all this kind of stuff. It's really good food to build these hives. So they're, they uh, build their hives from May uh, going into j- middle of June. We'll start getting flows of clover and alfalfas. And basically when we start focusing on our honey crop, so we basically build all of our in the spring, manage the swarming, build up nukes and all that good stuff, cleans them up. And we pretty much do all that work to prepare for the honey flow to come starting middle of June, end of June, into July. We primed up on that clover and alfalfas. I start bringing in a bit of surplus. And then canola uh, hits. Uh, canola is a, a crop that is used oil and it's a little flower. And there's like thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres across the countryside of this that farmers grow well. Our farm grows it too. Uh, we have it in a rotation. And it produces a very nice, mild-tasting honey. And we'll focus our, all of our work around the clover and that canola crop. And we'll bring in, and we're looking at like 150, 175 pounds of canola. And then after the canola finishes blooming, end of July, going into August, uh, then we start getting into sun. Um, we grow sunflowers also, and it's a bit of an amber-type honey. And that'll take us into the middle of uh, August, and then we start uh, losing the majority of our flowers in the countryside, and then we'll use the remainder of the flowers to, you know, finish off the hops uh, as they prepare for winter. So we'll start setting up that winter nest end of August into September. We'll build that beautiful little brood nest, and we'll start bulking up into September. We're generally, we're looking at a honey crop around 125 to 200 pounds uh, high per year. So it's quite uh, lucrative. Yeah, wow, that's that's really good. And with the um, the sunflower honey, you just sort of mentioned then, so that's a, like a mild honey? Because I've never tried that sunflower honey. So is that a popular one in Canada? Yeah, uh, the canola honey, the clover canola more is a premium honey because it's super white. It's almost water white some years, very mild. And we uh, we kind of cream it into a like a we naturally cream it into we call it cream dye. It's got a very soft uh, texture to it. Uh, the, the sunflower is more of an amber, and it's got a little more taste to it. If you it you know tastes like a sunflower if you, <laughs> if you think of it that way, but it's uh, it's not as uh, it's not as much as the canola honey, but uh, we sell it. We do still sell for a, a good price. Typically, we sell it down in the states where they like more of a darker blend in their honey crop. Okay. And um, obviously I was just thinking too, you know, Australia like Canada is, you know, is a, a big expanse of land. So what about traveling wise then? So how far do you travel from, from, you know, I guess your base, your, your, your factory or your, um, where, where you uh, work from your farm to how far, what's the furthest most distance that you travel with your bees? So I'm pretty stationary with my uh, business. Uh, my apiary consists of a big block, about 200 square miles. And I uh, typically, my apiaries are around Miami, Altamont. So, um, just kind of a nice, you know, our farm has been here for a little while. We farm quite a bit of land and 
we have some uh, uh, ranch land also, and we know the neighbors around. So I've been able to keep the other beekeepers out of the area, and they've held this apiary of mine exclusively for me. So I'm kind of more so in a stationary type. So I go about 20 miles one way, 10 miles the other way, 10 miles and 10 miles, you know. But uh, there's a lot of beekeepers in Canada that do a lot of traveling, uh, basically chase. So you'll have guys that'll travel 100 miles or 200 miles uh, between yards, just as they set up their apiaries wherever they can find space. There's also beekeepers uh, in Western Canada that will um, move their hives into blueberries into BC. Also, uh, you get an Ontario in the Maritimes. You'll get these uh, migrates from back down to New Brunswick, uh, Nova Scotia for the blueberries. So there's migratory beekeeping going on within Canada. Prairies, for the most part, we, we exclusively focus on the, the honey crop, which is that canola crop. So based, and a lot of guys who, you know, primarily honey producers, you know, sit down their territory and kind of sit down their honey house there. They generally, they, they harvest their crop off, uh, you know, no further than 100 miles around. Interesting, and um, obviously that's uh, that's pretty good. Your the way your farm is, you don't have to travel like you know in Australia. You know, with me, I've got some bees. I've got to travel three and a half hours, sort of one way to get to get to. So that's really good. So, and I noticed on your YouTube channel that uh, you've got an easy loader. How do you find that easy loader, Ian? Yeah, and I so my about an easy loader. Uh, it's it's uh, about ten years ago, I guess it was. And uh, basically structured my entire beekeeping operation around it, and it comes from Australia. <laughs> yeah, that's <what laughs> I, I know the guy who produces them. Yeah, Mark down there. But um, it's uh, kind of revolutionized the way that I keep bees. Uh, all my work is done with that loader, that boom arm. Uh, uh, the way I harvest my honey, the way I move my hives, just everything I do with it. So I and I hinge on it exclusively by using uh, skateboards. Um, there's two ways to harvest honey. One way is to lift the boxes off and blow the bees out, or there is, you know, use a mechanical means to lift the boxes and use non-invasive methods to clear the bees. So instead of focusing my operation on, you know, lifting those boxes and hiring guys to lift boxes and blowing bees off or using chemicals to push the bees out of the boxes, I switched my thought over to using this easy loader, which allows me to grab my entire stack of boxes, which can be four to five boxes at a time, and I lift them up, throw in two boxes underneath, throw in a, in a skateboard, and basically it's a one-way board. The bees can go one way, they can't go the other. So I put my entries down, put my skateboard, put the boxes full of honey and bees back on top, and I come back in three days, and by in that time the bees have moved from the top boxes through the escape board down to the bottom boxes. They can't get up through the board. So when I come back, the crew comes with the easy loader and we just strip the boxes off the hives with basically no bees in the boxes and bring them back to a honey house. And it allows me to uh, manage my honey crop. Uh, you know, we extracted nearly 300,000 pounds last year. So, you know, I'm standing straight at the end of the season. And I can hire basically anybody who comes to the farm that wants a job. They don't have to have that physical girth, you know, that, you know, that ox as a kid, as a beekeeper's friend, but I don't need to hire specifically those kids. I can hire, you know, uh, women who are girls are a little bit slighter or can't lift as much. You know, they can operate this equipment for me and pull off this honey crop. 
And it's also allowed me to uh, extract and or harvest my honey without using uh, uh, blowers. I don't know if you've ever used a bee blower before, but it's absolutely terrible. Harden the bees and it's just, you know, it's, the robbing is intense. But also, uh, I used to use fume boards with the butric acid, which drove the bees out of the boxes. It's extremely effective, but it just smells terrible. And I just hated the smell of it. And it, uh, there's a slight residue when you use that product. So by using an easy loader, it allowed me to adopt this uh, skateboard uh, management practice, and it's just been... my operation. I just... That's interesting. There you go. And with, and so with the easy loader, how so? So do you? Is there any faults um, that you find with it? Like, is there anything you you think you could improve the easy loader, or, or you're happy with uh, the way it works? Well, there's nothing really I'd want to improve the loader. It's a pretty well designed piece of equipment, uh, and it does its job. It reaches out about sixteen feet, and it'll lift six hundred pounds. So I mean, I'm lifting five boxes uh, per hive and every one of these boxes you know they average 80 pounds or whatever so I'm lifting 400 pounds at a time and I'm, I mean school kids are using this thing so the, the, the piece of equipment's pretty much bulletproof um, the only thing with this math method that I've been using here is uh, maybe it's not as quick as some of the guys who uh, harvest their honey with, uh, with acid or the blowers there's nothing quicker than hiring a bunch of guys, you know, overseas guys come in and lift boxes where you can get like three or four yards down a day or whatever. You just, it's a much simpler way of pulling honey, but it's much more labor intensive. So, you know, it's, uh, so the easy loader method is maybe a little bit slower, but I'm still, you know, with my setup here, I'm pulling off 500 hives per week. And that's pretty much matches exactly what my 60 frame column extractor can extract. So, you know, I can get through my entire apiary pulling honey in the first round and two and a half weeks. And then I go into my second round and, you know, you have to be pretty quick uh, pulling and extracting canola honey because it will harden. If you leave it too long and the comb will harden and then you can't get out of the comb. So it's very important you get it through very quickly. So I've been able to match the uh, easy loader and the skateboard and that time that it takes for the bees to clear in those boxes uh, with, you know, management practices, which allows me to get through 500 hives in a week and uh, get a, get my apron done within, you know, a month, month and a half so, or so. So that's basically uh, the gist of it. Okay, that's that's brilliant. That's a really good. I like the way you sort of you, you prefer to go things be more thorough and slower because as you said before about the blowers, you know, I mean that's really the poor bees get blown away, and as you said, it, it, it encourages robbing and, and bees are going crazy. So that's uh, that's really good. I like what you do there. And, and um, now speaking of obviously easy loadout, once again, check everyone check that out in, on uh, Ian's YouTube channel. Really, really cool scene. And use that and the crew. Now, now speaking of the YouTube channel, now you, you've been doing that for a few years now. Um, how, how did you kick that off? And, and I guess, why do you do it? Why do you do it? <laughs> yes, that's a good question. Why do I do it? Uh, well, it depends how much you want me to elaborate, but I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of, of how I kind of stumbled in upon this YouTube project that I'm doing. Um, kind of like... Um, 
well, I'm a, I'm a shy guy. I, 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 I don't speak very well in front of people. And I've always been that way, <clears throat> just the way it is. Uh, but I'm very uh, passionate about beekeeping and everything I do with the uh, honeybees. And I'm also very passionate about uh, agriculture. So I like to champion agriculture. So I'm very vocal. I got a little bit of a lobbyist spirit to me. But I've never been able to exercise that lobbyist spirit, or, you know, you know not a, let people know what I want to say or what I think. I've never been able to do that because I have trouble talking in front of people. Until, you know, I'm, I'm active on uh, social media. Uh, I've always been on B-Source. I, I know a few Aussies on B-Source. Um, uh, Facebook, we're active on Facebook and the B-Forms and all that kind of stuff. The one uh, fall, a beekeeper contacted me uh, from the BC Honey Producers Association. He, he said, he, he said, I'm in a tight bind. And he said, like, my, one of my main speakers, he got sick, he can't show up. I need you to fly out here and do a presentation for our association or convention. Uh, and I, I said, there's no way in hell I'm going to do that. I mean, are you absolutely crazy? And he said, no, no, yeah, you got you to do this. So I shut him down. I hung up. I said, I'm not doing this. And then he kept at me and, you know, contacted me again. And then he phoned my sister-in-law. And he said, you got to convince this guy to come and talk here because I'm right in a tight spot. So my sister-in-law convinced me to do this. So I accepted. I said, hey, okay, uh, Jeff, I'll come out. I'll speak at your convention. <clears throat> so I booked my ticket and everything. And, uh, you know, after I accepted, I sat back in my chair and it's like, holy shit, what did I just get myself into? Is that I don't know how to speak in front of people. I can't speak in front of five people, let alone 500 people. I didn't know what to do. So what I did is I wanted to hear what I sounded like. So I took my cell phone, you know, these iPhones, and I held it up and I took a little video of myself speaking. I didn't know what else to speak about, but bees, you know, so I started... We talked a little bit about bees, and I and I remember going back, watching my video. I was absolutely horrified by the way I sounded, and just my speaking mannerisms, my tics, and I deleted that. But I'm, I, I said to myself, I got it back. I, you know, I, I can't do this. So I was going to call up Jeff, and I said I was going to back out of it, and I decided, ah, you know, that's the wrong approach. So I decided to pick my phone up again and make another video. And not only make that video of myself speaking so I could practice speaking, but put it online on Facebook so that the people that I'm going over to speak to hear me before I get there. Because I was absolutely terrified about them hearing me speak for the first time and then just being like, is that Ian Stepley? Like, you know, that first impression. So I wanted to, I wanted my, uh, the people I was going to speak to at the convention to have that first impression first already. So I put it on Facebook, and then what I did is I put it on YouTube because Facebook's very cumbersome. So I started a, bee, a Canadian beekeepers. Well, I've always kept a blog. I've kept a blog on my webpage called a Canadian beekeepers blog. So I made this YouTube page called the Canadian beekeepers beekeepers blog. Also, and I link that back to my webpage all the time. So that was the genesis of my uh, my YouTube channel, and after. Kelowna in BC and spoke. I spoke very well. I had lots of good feedback. Like I spoke three times, three hours. And, and uh, after that, I just kept making these videos. And I've had beekeepers right across the country, associations all through the United States, contact and fly me out to their conventions to speak at these 
that's about beekeeping and all this kind of stuff. And it just keeps snowballing. <laughs> and here I am talking to you on a podcast. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, awesome. you know, so it's kind of got out of control, but I'm having a lot of fun. And, and it's helping me with my speaking skills. And now I can speak, you know, very easily in front of people. And it's, it's not, it's not any easier, but it's yeah, being able to do it now. I can achieve, achieve it now. And by doing it, I'm able to do other things that I want to do. Like, uh, like this lobby, spirit I have kind of, uh, go out there, champion agriculture, just kind of work toward keeping industry because it's my passion, specifically my passion. So I am now director of the Manitoba Beekeepers Association. I love president of the association. I might actually be president someday. Who knows? I love that. Eh? <laughs> and chairing a bunch of committees and a, I love it. Energy in the association. Yeah. That, that's, that's really, really cool. You know, I mean, what a, what a cool story, you know what I mean? And, and you've, look what you've created. You know I mean? You've got this, I think it's near on 50,000 subscribers or thereabouts or more uh, on, on YouTube. And, but the thing is what you're, what you're doing is you're sharing, you know, your knowledge, you know I mean? The, the mistakes that you've, you've possibly made and you know what you do. Cause I, I follow you. I love watching your, um, your videos because you know, this is the thing is beekeepers, as you already know, is you, you learn from everyone and, um, what you do can be, you know, transcribed into a way that we can do it in Australia. Obviously, you know, different seasons and things. Or, you know, obviously, as you know, we don't have uh, varroa mite in Australia. They're only common not to have it. So how you treat your mites on a big scale is something we can learn, you know, if or when we get these mites. So I absolutely love that. Now, now last last question for you, Ian, and once again, I really appreciate your time with this. And um, is what, what, what are you, what's your hobbies? What do you do in your downtime? What, what's, that, what's the things that you love? What's my hobby? You know, and I, I'm a very passionate farmer. I'm involved with the green farm and the cattle farm and this with the bee farm. So I'm really busy. And my, pretty much all my attention and passion goes in. Uh, but like any other healthy balance to life, you got to get away from that job. You got to get away from it somehow. So actually it's kind of funny because this YouTube project that I'm doing is kind of transformed into my hobby. It just allows me to spend a little bit of time uh, away from the farm, but in kind of a silly sense, it's actually absolutely connected to the farm at the same time. <laughs> so it's kind of, a, it just kind of spins there as this little hobby project, which I put a little bit of my own personal time into it. And it just allows me to get away from the farm and other little things, but at the same time, contributing to something that I'm very bad which is beekeeping. So, <laughs> so that's the gist of it. I love it. Absolutely love it. Now, Ian, I just want to say a big thank you to your time, uh, for your time, for giving us, uh, uh, you know, you've shared your knowledge and your time today. So I really, really appreciate it. So thank you for uh, for that. And um, I look forward, maybe in a, the next Appamondia, I think it's in um, in Russia. Uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll see you speaking up there. <laughs> I don't know if it'll get me that far. I've been offered to come to Australia actually to speak at one of your uh, national conventions, I guess. But uh, and then I've also been asked to go to New Zealand and Britain and into Turkey. But it's uh, it, so much time away from the farm to you know travel like that. It's hard, especially with a, uh, a family of five. So it's a, it takes a lot to get 
that much time away from the farms. But I do concentrate on speaking events across North America where I can kind of manage my time to, you know, three days at the most, four days. Sometimes Sandy will convince me to take an extra day off just to kind of travel the, the countryside where we go out. To, but to, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, yeah, time will tell. So, no, that's awesome. Yeah, ambitious travel spirit. <laughs> That's right. No worries at all. Thank, thank you so much, Ian. And really, once again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm more than happy to contribute to it. And we'll keep in touch. Thanks, Ben. Take care.